Jedi Squadron is a podcast run by the Anime Secrets website. Check us out at AnimeSecrets.org for more anime, video game, tokusatsu, and now Star Wars content. Remember to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts today. Hello, new Padawans, and welcome to the Jedi Squadron podcast. Here, you will be taking lessons in the many pieces of the Star Wars universe, whether it be the movies, animated series, video games, comics, and etc. This is your training into becoming a Star Wars fan as part of the Jedi Squadron. May your training go well, may the Force be with you, young Padawans. Hey guys, and welcome to the Jedi Squadron podcast presented by AnimeSecrets.org. I'm your host, Nathan Desa. And today, as announced at the tail end of our introductory podcast, I'm going to be doing the first of what will be a series of podcasts by myself where I will be taking a look at um, novels within the Star Wars Expanded Universe, um, although occasionally, hopefully, I'll be able to get some people uh, in on it to talk about it. Um, in this case, um, I will be taking a look at a, a book from the Star Wars Legends continuity, um, and I'll also be doing a canon material as well. Um, in this case, I'm going to be calling this a look into Legends, where I take a look um, at uh, books from the Legends continuity. And then uh, for a canon, uh, and then I'll be also doing my canon reviews. Uh, for those of you back home who are unaware, Legends continuity refers to basically all the material of Star Wars that was written and published before Disney purchased the franchise. Um uh, with the exception of the 2008 Clone Wars series, which is still considered canon. Um, with that said, um, I can't think of a better way to start off talking about the Star Wars Expanded Universe material than by taking a look at the very first novel released um, in the entire Star Wars Expanded Universe. This, is, this book is effectively considered... Uh, the grandfather of Star Wars Expanded Universe material, and that novel is referred to Splinter of the Mind's Eye. Splinter of the Mind's Eye was first published in March of 1978 and was written by veteran Star Wars writer Alan Dean Foster. Alan Dean Foster had previously ghostwritten the novelization for the original Star Wars movie, released a couple of months before the movie actually hit theaters. Uh, he was actually ghostwriting for George Lucas, but... Um, so that's pretty cool. Uh, he also wrote the novelization for The Force Awakens, Episode 7. And he also has a, um, a uh, another book called um, The Approaching Storm, I believe it's called, which was released in 2002, revolving around one of Obi-Wan and Anakin's missions before Attack of the Clones, uh, which we might take a look uh, there someday. But in this case, we are taking a look at his very first expanded universe novel, Splinter of the Mind's Eye. Now, I do want to say that there is a lot of history behind this book um, that uh, has a lot of uh, implications in terms of the Star Wars universe. So I'm going to be going into a lot of detail on the plot. So there's going to be a lot of spoilers in this review, but come on, the film is over 40 years old. So <laughs> uh, it's not like I'm hitting a book that's uh, that just hit shelves like two days ago. So um if you are not interested in spoilers, I do suggest that you skip ahead to like the review segment because I am now going to go into the plot very heavily. With that said, let's begin. 
Splinter of the Mind's Eye takes place roughly two years after the events of Star Wars Episode IV, A New Hope. Luke Skywalker, who is now a full-fledged pilot for the Rebel Alliance, escorts Princess Leia Organa on a diplomatic mission for the Rebel Alliance to the planets or Carpus V with the help of their droid duo C-3PO and R2-D2. But when they arrive, an energy storm erupts from a nearby planet that causes a malfunction in one of the engines on Leia's Y-Wing fighter, and the two are forced to crash land on the nearby swamp moon of Mimbon. With their ships damaged beyond repair, the crew are left stranded, unable to even call for help, and while searching for aid on the planet, the two stumble upon an illegal mining operation being overseen by the Empire. They also encounter an old woman named Hala, who claims to be a master of the Force. Sensing Luke's own strength in the Force, Hala enlists the two's help in infiltrating the ancient temple of Pimojima, where they will obtain the Kyber Crystal, a powerful gem that is said to be able to enhance one's abilities in the Force. The two agree to help Hala in exchange for finding safe passage to Sarkarpus IV, and the rest of the book is the many obstacles that the crew goes through while searching for the crystal. They get captured and taken to an Imperial prison. They break out with the help of two Yuzim aliens that they befriend. They, they encounter a number of creatures, including a giant worm that separates Leia and Luke from the rest of the group. They have to fight off some of the planet's natives. They encounter Darth Vader when he is informed of their presence by an Imperial officer who recognized Leia in the prison, and it all culminates with them finding the temple, holding the crystal, and it comes down to Luke having to fight off Darth Vader, after which the crew drives off into the distance. Now, I know what you're thinking after I just gave you that full explanation. This hardly comes off as anything really special. It's a pretty self-contained story. <laughs> it's pretty standard and doesn't really have uh, anything really groundbreaking in Star Wars lore. So why is it so popular? Why do people like to talk about it these days? And to that I say, it's not really the content of the book itself so much as it's the story behind the book. And this is where things are going to get really interesting. So like I said at the beginning of this review, this book was first published in March of 1978. Keep in mind the original Star Wars movie was released in 1977. So this book, unlike every other Expanded Universe novel, was actually released before the original trilogy was over. Pretty much every other Expanded Universe novel was released in the early to mid-90s at a time when the original trilogy was pretty much completed and everything that we needed to know about these characters was firmly set in place. But this book was released less than a year after the original movie came out. And this is where things get interesting. As crazy as this may sound, guys, there was a time when Star Wars was originally preparing to hit theaters that there was a legitimate fear that it would not be a successful movie. Many people in Hollywood did not have faith in the Star Wars, in the Star Wars movie. There wasn't really that many big-name actors attached to it. And overall, George Lucas was more or less kind of being prepared for the very likely scenario that the movie would be a flop. Despite this, however, George Lucas wanted to continue telling the story of Star Wars regardless of whether or not his movie did rise to success. 
And that is where this book came in. This book was written with the intention of being adapted as an official low-budget sequel to Star Wars if the movie did fail like it was expected to. Now, of course, we all know what happened after that. Star Wars was a huge success. Critics liked it. Audiences absolutely adored it. It surpassed Jaws as the highest-grossing film of all time. And it turned into a multimedia franchise that we love today. So, yeah, plans to adapt this book into a movie were scrapped before this book could even hit shelves. Lucas instead decided to go forward with the big-budget sequel that would become the masterpiece and, in my opinion, the greatest movie of all time in The Empire Strikes Back. So this book became nothing more than just something to tide all the new die-hard Star Wars fans over until The Empire Strikes Back came out. So in a lot of ways, George Lucas kind of set him... So in other words, George Lucas was in a position where this book could serve either one of two purposes. If the movie flopped... He had a potential for a sequel right there, and if the movie was a success, he could just tie it over Star Wars fans with this book until the sequel was ready to uh, hit theaters. But yeah, when this book was, or was originally written, it was meant to be a movie just as real as any other Star Wars movies, and it could have been the sequel to Star Wars. And it definitely shows that this book was meant to be adapted into a low-budget movie with how it was written. Luke and Leia traveled to Sarkarpus in X-Wing and Y-Wing fighters instead of one big alliance ship, which is obviously so that the producers could reuse the X-Wing and Y-Wing models used in the original film. Aside from the scene where Luke and Leia arrive at Sarkarpus 4 and crash land, there's virtually no scenes in space, which is weird since this is a Star Wars book, but... It kind of makes sense when you realize that space scenes in Star Wars, especially back then, are incredibly effects-heavy and would have been much more expensive to shoot, which is a big no-no when you're trying to film, a, trying to make a film on a lower budget. In fact, Dean Foster's original draft apparently had Luke and Leia's crash landing being due to a dogfight in space with some TIE fighters, but Lucas asked him to cut that out while reviewing the book. This book takes place pretty much entirely on a misty swamp planet that is incredibly dark and, you know, is covered entirely in mist, which, of course, is a way to allow the production crew to build cheaper sets that can be covered up with smoke and darker lighting. Han, and Han Solo and Chewbacca do not appear in this book, only receiving a few vague mentions here and there due to the fact that Harrison Ford at the time had not signed on to any other Star Wars-related projects. So with that being said, this book is a very interesting what-if scenario since we really get a great glimpse into what Star Wars may have been had the original film not been the surprise monster hit that it was. One thing that I will say is that George Lucas has always insisted that he had the entire story from the original trilogy mapped out. In fact, whenever you see interviews with George Lucas and other people, he will say that the original Star Wars movie that he had written the script was basically one big movie, but the movie script was too big, so he had to cut down all, you know, three acts of the movie into, you know, and expand them all into movies. But if this book is any indicator of what, of what was going to happen in Star Wars had the movie not been as successful, I don't care what George Lucas says, he definitely did not have everything mapped out and knew everything that he was going to do. 
There are so many moments, both big and small, that really conflict with all of the movies that came out after this book. Probably the most prominent and infamous thing about this book is the relationship between Luke and Leia. Right from the starting gate of this book, and in several moments all throughout, there is very clear sexual tension and romantic attraction between these two. There are several sentences and even paragraphs where Luke is describing his feelings for Leia and how beautiful she is in his eyes. There are several moments where they're traveling through the swamp where the two are together while resting with Luke even once feeling tempted to kiss Leia. We get a point where the two have to change into minor into the clothes of minors for a disguise during which Leia even goes so far as to say that she likes Luke but wonders if she can trust him and all sort of things like that. And even if you're a casual Star Wars fan, you will know that this type of behavior between Luke and Leia is disturbing. <laughs> I mean, okay, sure, they obviously don't know that they're brother and sister yet, and obviously if you've read this, if you've only seen the original movie, it does make sense, but it's pretty clear, at least at this point, that George Lucas saw them as a romantic pairing, because... Keep in mind, Lucas looked over this entire book before it was published and had to authorize it. So any claim that he has everything mapped out and that Luke and Leia turning out to be brother and sister, yeah, I'm calling complete BS. The fact that he approved this whole book and the whole Luke and Leia having a bit of a romantic subplot is prominent throughout this, yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry, George, I love you, and I love you for creating Star Wars, but you are lying if you said that you had everything mapped out from the starting gate. Another major thing is Leia's Force sensitivity, which is to say that it does not exist. In Return of the Jedi, once we find out that she is Luke's sister and thus has a connection with Luke, with the Force, just like Luke, and there are plenty of stories in the expanded universe, both in Legends and even a little bit in the new canon where we find out that Leia does have abilities with the Force. Yet in this book, it's pretty clear she has no Force sensitivity whatsoever. Hala claims that she can only feel the Force in Luke. Luke can feel energy through the Force when touching a shard of the kyber crystal that Hala gives him, yet Leia touches it as well when it's completely unaffected, and there's literally a point in the book where the crew arrives at the temple and Leia openly laments that she is quote-unquote not Force-sensitive. We can probably chop this up as her simply not knowing about her Force-sensitivity, but at least at this point in time within the book, it's pretty clear that Leia has no power in the Force. And speaking of connections to the Force, we have Hala, who is an incredibly weird character. She claims to be a master of the Force, even showing signs of Force powers to prove it when she encounters Luke and Leia. Yet at the end of this book, she claims that she was more of a faker and only capable of a few parlor magic tricks. Which is weird, considering how magic isn't something I would think exists in the Star Wars universe. I mean... I think they talk about magic here and there in the Ewoks cartoon. I haven't seen the Ewok, much of the Ewoks cartoon, but that's the only occasion where I can think of, and I don't even know if most people would consider the Ewoks cartoon canon even in regards to the uh, Legends continuity. It's also pretty clear that she's at least capable of using the Force, which begs the question of what her story is. I mean... Given her age, she's clearly old enough to have been around during Obi-Wan's time, so 
Was she a Jedi or at least a Padawan before? I mean, much later after this book was released, there was actually a six-issue Marvel comic based on this book, and Hala is dressed in robes that look almost identical to Jedi robes. Like, her design in the comic looks pretty identical to Obi-Wan, except for the fact that she's a woman, so that could imply that she was a Jedi, but then how did she survive the slaughter of the Jedi? Even in Episode 4, Obi-Wan makes it clear that the Jedi were wiped out, so it's clear George Lucas always had that part of the story with Order 66 mapped out. There's just so many unexplained things about Hala that don't make sense, and what's even weird is the fact that she never appears in any other pieces of Star Wars media. I actually checked Wikipedia, the famous Star Wars fandom uh, wiki for this review, and yeah, even according to that, this was literally the only time Hala appeared in any Star Wars material. She doesn't appear in anything, whether it's for the Legends or canon, so it's a huge, so she is a huge plot hole in of herself. But with that said, there's also a lot of things in this book that even in the Legends continuity simply doesn't add up and kind of makes it hard to believe that this book can even fit in to any Star Wars canon, whether it be the actual Disney canon or Legends. A few minor moments of this, oddly enough, include with lightsabers. At one point in the book, Luke and Leia have to break into a shop to steal minor uniforms, during which Luke uses his lightsaber to cut through the door, but he's able to adjust his lightsaber to the point where the blade is nothing more than just a cutting tool with a tiny blade. That's pretty weird since I don't recall any other moments where lightsabers had that type of feature. Later on, during what is essentially an outdoor ball brawl, Luke, while fighting off a few drunk miners, uses his lightsaber to fight them off. Rather than be awestruck, however, the miners simply carry on with the fight with there apparently being nothing odd at all of Luke using a lightsaber. Which is weird because it would probably be seen, it would probably be weird seeing the use of a lightsaber, and that's pretty inconspicuous. I mean, Vader has made all of the Jedi outcasts, so the use of a Jedi weapon would be seen more or less like a dead giveaway. I mean, okay, I guess maybe you could argue that this is kind of playing off what happened in the original movie when Obi-Wan uses his lightsaber in a bar or brawl during the cantina scene. But it, to be honest, that's an Outer Rim world where the Empire doesn't really have much presence. This is literally being done in the middle of a mining operation that is being overseen by the Empire. There's also multiple points of the book where Luke not only has to charge his lightsaber, but even refuses to lose it, use it, so as not to use up too much power. That's pretty weird since I've never known lightsabers to run on external power sources. There's also other minor oddities in the book, such as the Yuzim characters. The Yuzim are almost blatant Wookiee knockoffs since they're basically just giant fur-colored aliens that speak in roars and grunts. Some other Yuzim apparently do appear in other form of Legends material, but it's just weird how a completely new alien race was made when you could have just easily made them Wookiees instead. Weirder still is that Luke is somehow able to communicate with these two Yuzim perfectly, begging the question of how he can communicate with them, but has issues talking to Chewie. 
during the point where Luke and Leia get separated from the group, the two have to travel across a large lake area during which Luke has to carry Leia at one point with Leia saying that she can't swim, which is pretty hard to believe considering Leia grew up on Alderaan, a planet that has more bodies of water than Tatooine, a planet that is literally nothing but a desert. If anything, Luke should be the one who can't swim. Now, to be fair, they do make this change to suit it where Luke is the one that can't swim into the in the Marvel comic, but it's still pretty weird with it being in the move with it being in the book. However, the big thing that makes this rather difficult to fit into a Legends continuity is the final battle and and climax. In a lot of ways, the climax is a little too similar to the final battle with Kylo Ren and the Force Awakens, except replace Darth Vader with except replace Kylo Ren with Darth Vader. Luke is going to be in Rey's place and Leia in Finn's place. Darth Vader arrives at the temple to confront the duo, and with Luke pinned down by a large piece of rock, Leia picks up Luke's lightsaber and tries to fend Vader off herself, which is pretty neat, I'll be honest, but Leia does about as well as you would expect. Eventually, Luke frees himself and is able to fight off Vader and do a lot better than you'd expect. Vader not only commends Luke's skills, but Luke actually manages to go head-to-head -head with Vader, even managing to cut off Vader's right arm, and keep in mind, this is before the Empire Strikes Back. Luke hardly has any, has even a basic knowledge of the Force at this point, and he still is able to fight Vader off. This obviously makes l little sense given what we see in the Empire Strikes Back, and even more heavily trained Luke with more advanced training in the Force still struggles and promptly gets defeated by Vader, who hardly even breaks a sweat, and you feel like he's holding back half the time during their duel in that movie. Yet here, Vader is clearly tired while fighting Luke. There are some explanations. Some say that the kyber crystal is enhancing Luke's power in the Force to make him strong enough to go head-to-head -head with Vader. And it's subtly implied that the spirit of Obi-Wan Kenobi possessed Luke during this fight, since at Luke one point declares that he is Obi-Wan. But given how nothing's really confirmed in this book, it really comes off more like Luke just spontaneously is growing in the Force for the sake of plot convenience. So yeah, for all of you people who love to complain about how there's all this spontaneous and inexplicable grow growth in the Force powers just for the sake of plot convenience and saying that that's something that Disney does, I'm just here to tell you that this has literally been around since the days of old in Star Wars. A few minor inconsistencies are also the fact that in this fight, Darth Vader's lightsaber is described as being blue. Apparently, this has been retconned as Luke simply mistaking it to be blue due to the mist, and to be fair, in the Marvel comic, it is appropriately colored red, but many people speculate that this is due to Alan Dean Foster only being provided with limited information for the first movie when writing this novel, so he didn't know what color everyone's lightsaber was supposed to be. This kind of makes sense, especially since if you watch the original trailer for the original movie, during which we're shown Obi-Wan's fight with Vader, their lightsabers both have absolutely no color. It looks pretty bland in the original shot, so it was probably an honest mistake. Vader is also somehow to conjure a weird energy ball against Luke, which seems to heavily resemble force lightning, like what Palpatine uses, 
This could have been Lucas's inspiration for creating Force Lightning in the future, but this doesn't exactly make sense since it's established that Vader is unable to use Force Lightning due to him having robotic arms, and therefore he would basically fry himself to death if he tried to use it. Some have explained, though, that this is just a result of the kyber crystal enhancing his powers, but it also may be due to the fact that George Lucas was unclear what he wanted to do with Vader, since when Luke cuts off his arm, there's talk that there might be a little bit of blood coming out of Darth Vader's arm, which shouldn't be the case, but there's a lot of other weird things in this book. Yeah, a few other minor things to talk about is while this book is no longer considered canon, there are a lot of elements present from this book that were inspired from this book in canon. For example, the planet Mimban appears in Solo, A Star Wars Story, and while the planet doesn't perfectly resemble the one that is portrayed in this book, the Mimbanese aliens we see in the movie of Solo, A Star Wars Story seem to be almost perfectly resemble... They seem to perfectly resemble those shown here in the book. Another interest is the Kyber Crystal. Most of you who have a general knowledge of Star Wars know that the official naming for crystals that are used in Jedi lightsabers are called Kyber Crystals, though the spelling is different. The Kyber Crystal in this book is spelled K-A-I-B-U-R-R, -R, while the Kyber Crystals used for Jedi lightsabers are K-Y-B-E-R, and they're much different. The naming for said crystals was obviously derived, so that's actually pretty cool. That about wraps up everything that I want to talk about with Splinter of the Mind's Eye. It is an interesting look into what may have been for the Star Wars universe. It's a pretty standard uh, novel that doesn't really make any sense on its own. Let's just say that if you were to read it hoping it would bridge the gap between A New Hope and The Empire Strikes Back... You will be incredibly disappointed, but if you really want to get a glimpse of the direction Star Wars may have gone had the original film been a flop, I do recommend reading this. I won't bother giving the book any grades since, you know, this is more of an analysis on what direction Star Wars may have been taking versus what it ultimately took than analyzing the book itself. But I do think that any Star Wars fan who might be interested in a little bit of history would definitely be best suited reading this book, so I definitely recommend checking it out. That is it for this review. I thank you guys so much for listening to me and this little uh, history lesson of Star Wars. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Um, next time, I will be taking a look at uh, some more Star Wars novels. I'll be taking a deep dive into the uh, new Star Wars canon. Um, I haven't quite decided yet what book I want to start off with, but I will definitely uh, get to that review very soon. I thank you guys so much for watching. If you enjoyed this video, uh, please like this. Please like it. Subscribe to the Anime Secrets channel if you're not already subscribed. Uh, please leave comments down below with anything that you may want me to check out. Um, you know, I'll, I'll review it immediately if I've already taken a look at it. And if I have not, then I will um, get on it because I definitely want to uh, give people what they want with this podcast. Uh, please check Anime Secrets out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and all the other social media pages. If you're listening to this on iTunes or Spotify, I thank you so much for listening. Once again, I thank you guys so much for joining me on this brand new 
podcast. I hope that we're going to have a lot of fun taking a look at all these different Star Wars content. I look forward to many people at AnimeSecrets.org joining me to take a look and deep dives into the good, the bad, and the ugly of Star Wars. And with that said, the Jedi Squadron is preparing to enter hyperspace until we begin our next journey. So until that time, guys, see you later, and may the Force be with you.